tap the record button for the website. I hope you're enjoying the website. If you haven't, it does exist. It's updated. At least I try to keep it updated. And all the sermons are there. I want to welcome you again to Edgemont and say good morning to you. What a beautiful day it is. Last fall, we're coming up on fall, it seems like, in the middle of summer, but I, I sense that school's about to be beginning soon. My wife is already counting the days to starting classes. Anyway, last fall I shared with you from this pulpit that there are essentially two kinds of sermons, and I joked that you probably think they're long ones and short ones. <laughs> but I was thinking of a couple of other terms, categories called topical and expository. Topical sermons, I told you then, I'll remind you now, just like their name implies, they focus on a topic. Examples might be Christmas or the justification by Christ's imputed righteousness or resurrection or hell, right? You get the idea, a topic. A topical sermon allows the preacher to scour all the scriptures to find in various texts that help address that topic. And as topicals, as I refer to them, topicals, they have their place in the annual regimen or repertoire of the pulpit. But they're not appropriate as the primary method, again, primary method of preaching. And this is because they promote, right? They promote. They don't guarantee, but they promote delivering only messages that the preacher is comfortable with. That he's, I don't know, wants, wants to preach. Maybe, maybe, unfortunately, more often than not, perhaps, They come from a book that he's read recently or a sermon that he's heard recently or something that he just wants to to share. It doesn't always happen that way, but he can pick and choose. If only topicals are preached, there's a danger in that, though. It means that the congregation, you all might not, and I highlight might, it might not deliver the full counsel of the Word of God. The other kind of sermon is expository. This is the kind that is appropriate week in and week out with occasional interruptions for topicals. All right, like holidays and special circumstances or events. But expository preaching is that which is considered verse by verse, right? It goes verse by verse, and therefore it pretty much guarantees that nothing will be missed. And over the course of time... That whole counsel of God does get preached because no verses are missed. It's just like the author intended in the original letter or the gospel or the book. And perhaps just as important is that the preacher can't get away with squirming out of a difficult text. It's right there. If it gets missed, you'll notice it. Maybe you'll approach me and tell me I missed it. But more importantly, maybe most importantly, is that God notices. He wants us to get the full and complete counsel of his revelation. In other words, it's a bit of a casserole, if I can put it that way. Even if you don't like it, even if you don't understand its ingredients, it's still part of the dinner. We still have to put our fork into it. We still have to chew it up and swallow it. It's the Word of God. That means we have to take it for what it is. The Word of God. We have to swallow that by faith. The divine author of the Bible, he wants us to read it. 
He wants us to understand it to the best of our ability, according to his wisdom and glory. And so just because it's something hard, right, something, something difficult, it does not give us a free pass to skip over it. All right, so that's what we're up against this morning. Last week, I preached to you on the final verses of Mark's chapter 8, wherein Jesus taught plainly, right? he taught clearly about the inevitable, uh, his inevitable death and his resurrection and the alignment that we have as followers with him in both of those, right? In our death and in our resurrection, in our glory. We're to count the cost of following Jesus. But then I closed on, last, uh, on the last verse of Mark's uh, chapter 8, which is verse 38, because of time constraints. My hope was to finish it with verse 1 of chapter 9, but it's a very tricky verse. And if I had done that, I would not have given it the time I think that it is due. I say it's tricky because it appears in Mark, uh, the verse that appears in Mark 9, verse 1 really, I believe, should be in Mark chapter 8, verse 39. But there is no 39th verse in Mark chapter 8. It ends on 38. No 39th verse. And for some reason, we don't know why this verse, um, because it seems to be a continuation of the narrative that Jesus had given to the disciples and to the crowd that was gathered around him. It was a continuation of that discussion, or really that teaching he was giving to them about the way of the cross. This verse finds its way sort of as a a textual um, orphan, frankly. Finds its way into the beginning of chapter 9. I'm getting to the scripture reading. Getting there. Most of your Bible translations, they place this verse, Mark 9 1, as a separate text before the transfiguration section, which comes in the rest of chapter 9. But a a couple of the the translations, maybe you have one, the New King James Version and the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, or New American Standard Version at least, they have a section title before verse 1 that attributes verse 1 to the transfiguration. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm also not saying it's right. I remind you that chapters, verses, and section titles are not part of the original writings. They're not divinely inspired. The Holy Spirit is not the author of chapter numbers or verse numbers or section headers. They are, instead, they're the, they're the work of and the agreement of the Bible committee who helped to publish the version that you have. All right, so armed with that, let's read the Word of God now as it was written and revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Of course, in today's text, that would be in Greek. We're not going to do it in Greek. We're going to do it in English. And I've chosen, for all of our sakes, in particular, uh, to read from the English Standard Version. It's the same text as last week, but we're going to focus on 9-1 as the sermon. So if you would, Mark 8, 31 through 9-1, it's the Word of God. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amen. That is the infallible, the inerrant, the holy word of God. Now you may have already formed an opinion of what Jesus is referring to in verse 1 of chapter 9. And that's okay. I'll repeat it here. He said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. All right, but before I help you either confirm your conclusion or perhaps help others to consider differing possible meanings, I want to remind you that the Bible is the word of God. Right? It's the word of God, and by that status, we acknowledge it to be without error. Now, without error in its original writings, all right? We declare the truth of its infallibility as well. In other words, the Bible, in part and in whole, it's perfect with regards to its trustworthiness. God cannot. He cannot. It's not in his nature, and therefore he does not lie. He's not the author of confusion or of disorder. That's 1 Corinthians 14.33, if you want to mark that. God is not illogical. Everything, everything God does or says, it makes perfect sense. But not always do we or can we see it. God is omniscient. Of course, we're not, right? We, we, we are finite. He's infinite. He knows everything. We have finite minds that are often and most likely they're formed by experience, by what we're taught. So we don't see, we don't understand all of his teachings. From time to time, you may hear someone claim that the Bible contains errors or that certain verses are in conflict with each other. But of course, if the Bible is from God, then that claim can't be true. God has never, ever in conflict with himself. In the Bible, it's in, internally, within itself, it is 100% unified by the Holy Spirit. That's the common author of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, who inspired their writings through the personalities and the skills of various men. So that's my first point this morning. The Bible contains no internal contradictions. None. 
And so we have to understand that when the scriptures don't make sense to us from time to time, you can rest assured that that confusion or that ignorance, right, that lack of understanding isn't with God. It's not with the Bible. It's with us. In faith, we accept that we're by far the lesser mind in that engagement with the word and that the eternal God of all creation didn't mess up a case here or a case there. No examples are messed up by God. Admittedly, I want to say, of course, we, we know that some of the passages, they don't seem to make sense to us. On the surface, they look like they contain ideas. They appear to be in conflict with each other. One such example, we read it this morning. I don't know if you caught it or not, but it's Mark verse 35 in our, in our reading this morning. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Seems to be a bit of a conundrum. How can one both save his life and lose it? You're smart people. I think you know the answer to that. In one sense, when you confess Jesus as Lord, you die to yourself. You lose your life. And you lose the worldliness, right? That worldly life that once owned you. But in doing so, you're given the new life, right? New clothes, new heart in Christ. So this type of passage that I'm describing here, one that seems to be in conflict with itself, but upon further examination is understood to contain a salient truth that actually does make sense, that's called a paradox. A paradox. Another brief example of a paradox is found, it's a classic one, in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, we're advised to not answer a fool according to his folly. But in verse 5, immediately after that, we're told to do the exact opposite, that we should answer a fool according to his folly. Now, I'm going to read you both those verses so you can see what I'm talking about. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. All right, so which is it? Do you or don't you? It's both. It's both. The Bible's not in conflict with itself. Proverbs is a book of divinely ordained common sense. Right? It's not a book of promises. It's not a book of prophecy. Furthermore, it's written in a genre, a literary genre, genre of Hebrew poetry. So it makes use of what's called parallelism which typically uses two or three statements to address the same truth that enhance, when taken together, it enhances our understanding. In the case of this example, Proverbs 24, I'm sorry, 26, 4 and 5, we have an antithetical, right, an opposite parallelism, which sets forth a, a seeming contradiction, but it does so for a specific purpose. It does so that it enhances or enlarges our understanding of the truth that's presented. Now, I'm going to restate it for you here, verses 4 and 5. If I restate it this way, maybe you'll get it easier, more easily. When the fool comes as a skeptic with his questions or his inane statements, you are to respond to him from the truth of God's word. That's verse 4. 
Do not answer him from his faulty and irrational worldview. That's verse 5. Right? They're opposites, but they're not in conflict with each other. So as you respond from the heart of God, you seek to both dismantle his argument and also to win his heart. That's the purpose of the whole statement in 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and I'm paraphrasing here, you'll, you'll remember this. We're told that we should take every thought captive to obey Christ. And by such, we destroy every speculation, right? Every foolish contention that the world offers up. We do that through the word of God. So don't be thrown off by paradoxes. Something, again, that appears to be in conflict, but upon further examination, isn't. Be ready to answer the world when they contest that the Bible doesn't agree with itself. Jude 3. Jude 3 says, contend for the faith. But don't be contentious. Defend the faith, but don't be defensive. Let the Bible be the offense, not our personalities. Win the debate with grace for God's glory, while you also seek to win the person to God's grace for glory in Christ. So now you have an appreciation for contradiction versus paradox. There's no contradiction in God's word. It's impossible. And paradoxes are not contradictions, but can be resolved with a deeper understanding of God's word. That's why the Bereans, they poured over that stuff to see if it was true. Just what wasn't easily, superficially, readily understandable to them. Now let me consider with you this next thing called a mystery. I don't think this requires much explanation, but you should know that the Bible does contain mysteries. Unlike contradictions, which are not possible, mysteries are real. They exist. They are possible. But unlike paradoxes with mysteries, we don't have enough information to really unpack them upon further examination. There's not enough biblical information or revelation from God to resolve it. Mysteries are not just difficult texts, okay, but they give rise to questions or issues that are beyond our ability to understand, to explain. I'm going to give you some examples. You might be thinking of a few yourselves. How do we explain God's origin? Of course, God never had one, right? He's infinite in the past as well as in the future. But in our finite minds, which did have a beginning, we we can't fathom God never having an origin. It's a mystery. Similarly, if you've come to know Christ as your Savior, can you explain to me why God chose you? Yet while he left, why he left others in their sin? Why he reconciled you to himself for eternal glory while others will experience eternal damnation? We will never have the answer to that. It's a mystery. Why did God choose, choose Jacob and reject Esau? Mystery. Other than putting up our hands and saying that such decisions, they're for God's glory, which, by the way, is the right answer, the right confession, we'll never know the answers to these. And so now let's get to chapter 9, verse 1, which I know you've been chomping 
at the bit about. You've been fidgety, maybe, to get there. This, kind of, uh, this is the kind of verse that people in home Bible study groups, they spend a, a lot of time sometimes, an inordinate amount of time on, because they're intrigued by it. And there's often one or two people that'll sort of with some conviction, they say they have the definitive answer. I say that some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God with power. And they, they say, I know what that means. I have the definitive answer to that. And somebody else says, well, I can, I can tell you exactly what Jesus is referencing when he talks about the kingdom of God coming in power. And before you know it, there's a healthy debate and hopefully it stays healthy. But maybe more often than not, there's some deep-seated, differing points of view that get shared and the whole thing goes south. Hopefully nobody gets really offended. As an aside, and I thought about saying this more than once, but I decided to put it in the sermon. As an aside, we here at Edgemont, we have friends and we have acquaintances who have left our fellowship because of some sort of disagreement that they experienced or that they imagined. For whatever reason, they got offended and they left. They haven't returned to our pews. Now I'm going to ask you, would you do your church a favor? Which is a way of saying that would you do your Lord a favor? Would you take it upon yourself to contact one or two of these people whom you might know? Would you invite them back? Let them know that we want them to return to our fellowship and to worship with us. That we're all sinners that we're all in need of forgiveness and God's grace, his amazing grace, and that we would be a better congregation with them. I'll leave that with you. Anyway, regarding verse 1, the fact of the matter is that nobody really knows exactly what Jesus was referencing. We might have a personal conviction, but we don't know. But still... If you do the research, as I promised you, as I promised you, I have done the research, you'll find biblical scholars, educators, and commentators that are positing all kinds of ideas about what this verse means. One of my favorite preachers of the living day, anyway, current age, Alistair Begg, he likes to say that the main things are the plain things. I like that sentence or that phrase. So when there's a major point in Scripture... It'll be made clear and discoverable. If it's important, if it's a main and plain thing, it will be made clear to the believer. But if they're minor points, and by minor, I I don't mean unimportant. I just mean not focusing on the primary tenets of Scripture's purpose. Those major things being revealed to the glory of God, right? The nature of man, God's redemptive covenants and the, and the way that he saves people and what our obligation is in response to that atonement of Christ, how we get saved. There are other majors, as I call them, but those are the big ones. In the scheme of those, today's verse one is relatively minor. Again, it's not unimportant, but comparatively less so. Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. What you have in this verse, if you haven't picked up on it already, is a prophecy. 
It's a prophecy that something's going to take place in the future, and it's not going to happen 2,000 years from the time Jesus said it. The time frame specifically attached to this prophecy, Jesus gives it. He says, some of you who are present will not taste death, which means will not die, until you see the kingdom of God present in power. It's a bit of a cryptic prediction. It's about something that's going to happen within the space of the remaining lifetime of the disciples and maybe some of the crowd who are there listening to this. The implication of this prediction, if you haven't picked up on it, is that possibly that some of them will die before that prediction comes to pass. Some people, and I count one of my most admired teachers among them, he's no longer with us, He passed some time ago, R.C. Sproul. Some people think that Jesus is referencing the future destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, right, the year of our Lord, 70. If Jesus is talking about the manifestation of the kingdom of God and power coming during the last throes of the Jewish resistance to the breakthrough of the kingdom of God, which Jesus has been encountering in his earthly ministry all through the Gospel of Mark, It happened when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, when it was laid bare, when no rock was laying upon any other rock. It was totally destroyed by the enemies of the Jews. In A.D. 70, for the first time, the Christian church was understood as a distinct entity from Judaism. It was no longer considered a subset sect within Judaism. It wasn't considered anything other than a triumph of the Messiah's church. It was made visible. It was manifest in power with the judgment of God that came to Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And yes, for for, uh, some of those who were present when Jesus was talking about the coming manifestation of the power of the kingdom, some of these people did die, in fact, before the year 70. His announcement in Mark 9.1 and the coming of the kingdom in power in A.D. 70 actually have alignment. Maybe, maybe this is what Jesus is referring to. Another possibility, some think that Jesus is actually speaking about his resurrection. They say, of course, this is a dramatic display of God's power, and they'd be right. Those holding this view will maintain that this refers to the resurrection because the resurrection certainly demonstrates this manifestation of Jesus and his kingdom and power even more powerfully than the transfiguration. Another possibility, the third of four, if you're going to be counting. The third possibility, some think that Jesus is simply speaking of the spread of the kingdom. Right, the result of his teaching and his preaching in the early church. 5,000 people by the time we get to Acts chapter 4 were the number of the church. 3,000 being converted on one day at Pentecost. This they say it must be. Others think that he's specifically referencing the Pentecost, that Jesus is referring to that day. Certainly, of course, on that day, there was a dramatic display of God's power, which precedes that spreading of God's kingdom. It makes sense. It was then that the disciples received power from heaven and that they saw the dove come down, right? And the 
form the, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and the church was empowered with the, the presence of the kingdom of God. That could be what nine one's referring to. And then the fourth possibility. Some think that in terms of the proximity of what follows, which is the the, 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 the story of the transfiguration. We're going to get to that next week. That because of the editorial placement of where that is, that Jesus is probably making re- reference to the transfiguration itself. Many commentators, that they argue for this conclusion since Mark places it right before the description of that transfiguration. And since the transfiguration was sure you'll agree with me, it was most dazzling, right? The scriptures tell us that. It was a, the most dazzling manifestation of the presence of the kingdom of God in glory and power that occurred during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Prior to his resurrection, of course, they say that that's why Mark placed it there. He's predicting the transfiguration. That statement was made by Jesus How long before the transfiguration? Just six days. That's what it was, six days. I find it a bit puzzling. I think it's curious that Jesus would say, some of you won't taste death in the next week. Why would Jesus put a time frame around that? And we're still left with the added conundrum that no one died during those six days leading up to the transfiguration. And of course, six days later, he took Peter and James and John. He took them up onto a high mountain. And guess what happened? They saw the kingdom of God come with power. They saw the glory of God, which had been veiled in Christ's humanity, not obliterated, but veiled in his humanity. And there on the mountain, it was made radiant. And it was observed to those disciples. Now, in case you were wondering, that's the position that I lean towards. I'm not adamant about it, but I lean towards it. The others have merit, and you'll hear me say from time to time that good men differ. But if you pressed me, that's the interpretation I'd be inclined to conclude. Now, would I argue for that? Would I draw a hard line in the sand as it being really important and even certain? No, not for a moment. Again, this verse 1 is not a main and plain thing, and I don't believe there's a spiritual need to be specific about its meaning. If any of these possible meanings, maybe there are others as well. I've given you four. Those with eyes to see, they could have, right? People could have perceived before they died that God had powerfully taken control of all kinds of events to work out his purposes in history. In other words... There were all kinds of things and all kinds of ways in which this statement made by Jesus could have found its fulfillment in the lives of men and women of that day before they died. One thing is for certain. I know this, and Edgemont, I believe you know this as well. The word of God does not fail. If Jesus says that something's going to happen, it's going to happen. He is the truth incarnate. And if he gives a time frame, he doesn't miss the mark. And we may be sure that it happens when, uh, within the time frame that Jesus declares. 
And so that's the best I can do with this verse for you. And you also have my latitude of grace if you believe the Lord has laid it on your heart to believe something different with regards to that event under examination this morning. It's okay. We're not going to differ or divide over that, rather. So I ask that may the Lord be with each and every one of us as we continue to examine the scriptures on a daily basis until the day of our own passing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the words of Jesus cannot be broken. We pray that you would give us understanding of some of those messages that were, were difficult to comprehend, that you would open our eyes to the fulfillment of Jesus' predictions that took place even in the first century. And yet, Lord, at the same time, we ask that you would keep our hearts aflame in joyous expectancy as we await, we await his second coming, Lord, that final coming at the end of the age. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.